Welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. Well, welcome everybody to our Friday Five Live. Happy Friday, happy June. Um, I know there's a lot going on in the world of higher education. Um, we don't take a break, right? People sometimes think that, that the summer is a quiet time at colleges and universities, but I, I often found they were terribly misinformed. So we really appreciate everybody um, logging in today from just absolutely all over. Um, we are going to have, I think, just a fantastic conversation in this Friday Five Live um, with regards to enrollment, which is such a hot topic um, in, in our world. Um, my name is Meg Foster. I'm a first-year experience instructor at Piedmont Virginia Community College and very fortunate to get to be your host um, for Friday Five Live. And I'm joined today by Aaron Basco, um, who is at the University of Lynchburg. Um, and I found Aaron through his incredible writing um, with the Chronicle of Higher Education, though I know you write for, I believe, other publications too. You've um, it, it just fantastic thought around how we can um, help institutions uh, become places that, you know, our students can really succeed and um, lots of varying ideas there. And I uh, really appreciate in your bio, you talk about creating aha moments and you've definitely given me some aha moments um, as I've had the opportunity to to read some of your writing. So um, we do have a robust set of questions for Aaron. Bless him. I probably had to put these in 12 point font because there's so many of them. But I do want to remind um, our listening audience, you know, we really do appreciate hearing from you also um, and, and love that so many of you have introduced yourselves in the chat. Um, do use the everyone drop down um, and feel free to put your questions in um, as, as Aaron and I chat today, um, because that will really help inform the conversation. Um, we want to make sure this is uh, useful information for everyone. So, Aaron, um, thank you for being with us today and welcome. Thanks, Meg. It's my pleasure to be here. I think this is a, a great, timely set of uh, questions for us to talk about. And I'm just uh, thrilled that uh, so many colleagues from around the country and even internationally, as you mentioned, have tuned in to, for us to talk together. Awesome. Well, Aaron and I share this kind of common experience of um, admissions um, work. That was where I got my start in higher education, as I had shared with Aaron. And um, and also understanding some of the small private colleges and universities in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So it's just um, exciting to get to be here with um, you today, Erin, and get to have this conversation. So as we kind of kick off um, our discussion, you know, a lot has been written this year. You've done some of that writing, but I think all of the higher ed news sources, right? Lots of talk about declining enrollments um, and really trying to figure out kind of the why behind the trend. Um, you know, I think we're, we've all been looking towards that kind of demographic cliff that gets talked about a lot, um, but would be interested to hear from you kind of what are some of the major factors that you're seeing impacting college enrollments? And are these factors impacting kind of all institutions in the same way? Or are you seeing some differences between institutional types? Yeah, great question. I mean, clearly, as you you know mentioned already, one of those factors is just demographic, right? And what we've all heard about and seeing in terms of, uh, of student changes. But I think there's a there are a lot of other factors that are kind of overlapping to make this time particularly interesting. Um, I, I think there's a lot of shock wave kind of like um, or a little bit of um, 
maybe the sense of coming out of the pandemic that everything has been you know disrupted and that we're out of our normal rhythm for things. So I feel like many families are coming back into this process and are just, they already feel behind. They are out of practice with the normal things that we would be seeing and that they would be doing at certain times. And they're questioning a lot of things. I think there was a lot of soul searching that's happened over the last two years about what's important to people, how they want to spend their time, how close they want to live to their families, um, you know, what's really of most value value to them in their lives, um, how much time they want to spend at home. I mean, all kinds of things that have come out of this time period. And I think there's been a little bit of um, lag as well in terms of some practices that um, have been going on for a long time that um, we just didn't realize impacted us in that same way. So I'm seeing things like, um, you know, the, the fact that institutions, our plan has been, okay, if we're going to succeed, that means we have to all grow every year, right? And you can only do that so much, but it starts to catch up with you for a while and you start to see cracks in the system. And then especially when you add new online opportunities and different ways of approaching education, you're going to saturate your market. And you're going to also do that sort of with a, a financial arm as well. I mean, one of the big pressures that I see are students who are very skeptical about making investments, not so much for themselves, but the fact that they've seen their parents really struggle with college loans. And so they are all trying to be very, very you know, um, low debt uh, in those areas and reacting to their parents' um, time periods, um, which I, I think is just fascinating. So we're seeing all these pieces kind of come together into an environment where um, students are skeptical, parents are skeptical, um, we are behind in terms of our normal enrollment cycle, we're a little bit frozen, um, and we have low demographics. So I think it's it's creating a what feels like a bit of a crisis moment um, for the enrollment profession. And I think some institutions that have been able to kind of lump along and, you know, kind of maybe not show that they're not in, a, in great shape. I think some of that is also coming back to haunt them at this moment after, you know, sort of back into post um, pandemic times. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Then that institutions that kind of were able to to present this face, right? That things were going well, now those cracks. And I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea. I think you've hit a really important point that we have students who are kind of, um, for lack of a better word, second generation potential loan borrowers, right? Yeah. In the educational market. And so, um, and they are seeing, I can think of many of my own high school students, friends, parents who are still grappling with, paying off college loan debt, um, you know, 20 years after they've, they finished a degree. And uh, that's an important ripple, I think, that I'm not hearing. I'm not hearing a lot about that right now. But I think that, that that's a really important one. You know, we're, we've, as we began our call, we were talking about this idea of summer melt and EAB today, um, in their, you know, daily newsletter, um, had a has a piece about ways to address summer melt. This concept that you know students commit for the fall semester and then sort of disappear, right, um, melt away over the summer. And um, you and I had spoken about, and I'd be intrigued to find out if you see this as a trend. Um, you know, I've heard some things, I've read a few things about students depositing at multiple institutions and kind of continuing to shop the college decision through an orientation process like uh, before they really make a decision, which of course then leads into more summer melt. 
but are you seeing any kind of creative strategies with various institutions to sort of grapple with making sure that the numbers they have now are are solid numbers, right? Um, are, are really going to be the students who are going to be there for move-in day or day one of class if you're at a commuter institution. Um, and, and, and things that even now at this point, I mean, I know it's June the 10th, um, but we still have eight weeks, nine weeks before potentially semesters begin. And that's still time, right, to bring in a class um, for the fall. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think you're right. I mean, there certainly is some double depositing going on. And I think, though, also we are seeing just a lot of um, messiness from families, right? Just like, you know, we've moved into an era where students, they don't assume that they're going to make the same, uh, you know, follow the same pattern that other people have had. You, you suddenly have students who are coming from many different paths, right? They've been doing dual enrollment for the last two years with a community college, right? Or, um, you know, they, they've taken all kinds of AP credits, or they've thought about taking a, you know, semester off, or there just are more pathways than there used to be. And so now, instead of this pressure that like, okay, this is the way you do it, you move away to college, you, you know, you move into a room, you know, you suffer through a, you know, a rough, you know, roommate situation, small dorm room, whatever else is just the way it's done. A lot of people are, I think, sort of saying why, right? Like, I don't want to do that. Like, I, I don't feel that same pressure that this is the only way to do that. And so I'm saying, you know, I, I, I'm choosing not to, I'm going to change my direction or whatever. So I think, I think there are some shifts that are going on there. You know, a lot of what I see happening um, in this space, as far as melt has a lot to do with sort of institutional policies and practices. I think what happened was in previous years, this was all admissions fault, right? When melt didn't work uh, or when there was too much melt and, you know, students weren't sticking, it was like, well, why can't admissions, you know, get the right students? And I think what we're doing now is we're starting to see that a lot of this has to do with the handoff between admissions and other areas of campus and whether that's going well or whether it isn't. I've spent a lot of time working on this lately. I just did a, I'm working on another article for the Chronicle right now talking about student accounts and the ways that we, there are so many missed opportunities in the way that we work with families through student accounts. But I, I see this everywhere that, you know, on the front end, admissions has tried so hard to like gently handle and, and work these students through the process and really be there for them. And then it's suddenly like, well, here's your bill, you know, show up for a, a, an orientation day and pay for it. And, you know, we'll get you whatever classes we can and, you know, sort of show you what you need to do. Right. But it, it feels very abrupt, I think, for families. Right. And so they struggle with that. And so we've spent a lot of time trying to work on our offices on campus to get us all on the same page, talking more often to try to think through what this um, feels like from the student journey perspective. Uh-huh. Um, I think the other thing that, you know, just amazes people. I think part of this is we're working with a more diverse group of um, students economically than maybe we have in the past as well. And so students go along happily and merrily. And all of a sudden you get to the time of year where a bill comes out and they're like, oh my gosh, you mean I have to pay for this? Um, You know, the financial aid office is always telling me that they're like, somehow the student didn't get the memo that like college costs money and they have to come up with a way to do this. So we've been trying to do a lot to really pre-prepare people for that, right? We're sending out pre-notifications to students saying, hey, your bill's coming out in a month. Uh, These are the things you want to make sure you've had a conversation with us about if you're not sure, right? And I think the other thing that's really, really key is to involve parents in the conversation because, you know, we've just seen that parents are 
um, super active in this process, making decisions, taking care of things. Um, you know, I, I was talking to the staff member this morning and she was like, you know, I think 80% of the student onboarding piece, students aren't even involved in. They're not doing anything, obviously, with their bills, but they're also not signing up for their own housing. They're not picking their own, you know, filling out forms for their own classes. They're basically like, mom, dad, you know, I got to go to my summer job. Can you take care of this for me? And um, and the parents are doing it and taking care of it. And so involving them in the communication in a regular way, I think, is is really key to working with them. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Uh, I, I love the term that you used here, the student journey. Um, you know, and, and I have that lens of having worked in for your sm- small for your private colleges in admissions, right, where I knew every student that I worked with, I knew their parents' names, I knew how many siblings they had, I knew their siblings' names, you know, like, uh, you just knew them, right, as these very whole people. Um, and, and then working in a community college where it's much larger population, all commuter, you don't have that same degree of of knowledge of your students that you're enrolling, but the commonality of needing to have a very smooth student journey, whatever the institution is, right? That we're doing this gentle handoff. Um, you know, I, I, and I think, I think in my experience at two years, that's a major shift in thought process because for so many years, oh, well, we're just open to the community and we, our enrollment just comes from the community. We don't, we don't need to have that kind of gentle handoff because there'll always be, you know, 10 more people to fill that spot, right? If, if the handoff doesn't go well and the student um, doesn't end up enrolling with us. And of course, we're seeing the largest enrollment declines at our two-year institutions um, across the United States. I think California has lost 100,000 um, community college students this year. So I, I, I think you're, you've really hit on such an important point that at each step in our process, students need to feel they're being cared for, yeah. um, um, and and that they they have those you know connection points to guide them through what are often very complicated processes. Right, and I think you know the other thing that goes with this, and we may talk a little bit more about retention because I think this is a direct parallel to the way we work with the retention for students, but. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time, I think, trying to figure out, okay, how do we get every barrier out of the way for students and make this as smooth of a path as possible? But that's a little bit impossible to get perfect, right? You, you can do better always, but the student is going to have bumps. Every family is going to have some bumps in the process. So what you really need to provide is at least one good reason for the student that overwhelms those bumps, right? So um, they need to have a really one or two things that keep them so connected that they have a a compelling reason that when something bad happens, right, we send them the wrong piece of information or they, you know, get put on hold forever in a certain office or whatever happens they they can re- have some resiliency through that, right? Because they said, no, this is really important to me, right? So, you know, you're not likely to lose those students who, you know, are recruited athletes who have an amazing relationship with that coach and are so excited about taking that spot that they've been given, right? Because they have a compelling reason to be there. And if they have some bumps in the process, they're going to say, well, that's a pain, but you know, it's not going to dissuade me from what I'm trying to do. And I think the students that we are going to lose in MELT are those students who don't have that compelling reason. And one of our big challenges is to figure out how can we find a way to connect them to the institution that is that compelling. Mm -hmm. 
and early, right? Yeah. That, and, 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 you know, you're, and as we do in Friday Five Live, we're always skipping around questions. Um, so this is a nice segue into uh, one of our later questions because, you know, I really kind of found you through this piece in the Chronicle that you wrote in November where you examine retention from sort of this perspective, like what if we approach student success differently? Um, and and you've kind of touched on it, but could you sort of maybe expand some more about this sort of approach to retention? And, and do you have any, I, like, I love this example of, of your recruited athlete, but I'm thinking, you know, I've I can see several colleagues here on the line from community colleges, and we may not have that kind of reason. While many institutions, two-year institutions, do have fantastic athletic programs, many of us don't. So um, maybe some other examples that we could refer to as we think about examining kind of retention and, and student success strategies a little differently. Absolutely. Yeah. In the piece that I wrote, it really took the angle of looking at the um, the Gallup big six um, for success, right? So the six, what are the six practices that through all the Gallup research that um, students need to experience if they want to have a really successful um, educational experience and move on into the world with confidence and um, in those kinds of pieces. And so what Gallup, you know, in these big six um, kind of talked about, and you can you know, kind of look them up, but for me, there were two that they all come down to, right? That every student in some way needs to have at least one person on campus who they have a real connection with, who they feel like has their back and they can trust and they can confide in and, you know, feels like they care that that student is there on campus. And the second thing they need to have is an opportunity to be involved in some type of activity that's meaningful to them, right? So whether that's, whether that is a sport, whether that's a club, whether that's some kind of, you know, activity on campus, but you, those two pieces, right, of, of um, keeping students connected in that way, one of them is somebody having their back and one of them is them moving forward towards something which they identify with. And I, I really think that's the key to um, retention. And I think probably almost all of us could relate to that as you think about your own college experience, right? Who was that professor who you just thought was amazing, right? And who changed the course of your life and who believed in you, right? Or that um, advisor, or, you know, maybe it was a, you know, again, a coach or a club leader, or maybe it was a student who was, you know, more senior to you, right? But they were, you were like, wow, this person cares that I'm here and it matters to them that I'm here. And it becomes very hard to quit when you have a person like that, right? You're like, I don't want to disappoint that person. That person's really important to me and their opinion is really important to me. And so, you know, just having them engaged in some way, right? I think about, you know, my son, who's a sophomore in uh, college right now out in Ohio, and what got him through his first year of college during the pandemic was intramural volleyball, right? Like not key to his academic success, but he needed an activity where he belonged and he was part of this team and that got him through, right? Or the, you know, just knowing that there's a professor who takes an interest in you and says, hey, you, you should think about doing some research with me or that kind of thing. Those are the things that um, they're not complicated. They don't involve, you know, 10 years of data. They don't involve like mass, you know, but they, they do require intentionality um, to, to connect students in. And, you know, some of that's intentionality on the part of that individual faculty member, um, but it's also an intentionality of culture, right? To say everyone who works here should be mentoring students. Everyone who works here should be reaching out and letting students know that we care. Um, I have a, a person who works for me as an admissions counselor, and she said that the, the person who kept her in school um, was actually the cleaning lady in her dorm, 
who was just wonderful and just adopted her and checked in with her all the time. It was just so bubbly and so concerned and caring that she said there was no way I was leaving and disappointing that person. Right. Um, so I, I think it's, it's elegantly simple, but, um, but still hard to do. That's so so powerful what what you're saying and and this has been a theme we have had throughout this year we we kicked off a conversation in the fall with the university of wisconsin milwaukee team who were profiled in the chronicle a couple of times because they have really examined kind of the return to this academic year from this idea sort of of trauma-informed care right but but thinking about how that shifts the entire campus culture to being one of care that and and what will that do for an institution that is largely commuter um you know um in an institution where they really found they were struggling with some retention numbers um and and wanted to to help their students be successful so um Robert asked the stuff, you know, I'm driving, is the transcript and video available? Yes. Um, just as a reminder, this is the Friday Five Live podcast. So you can um, find us on all podcasting channels and this one will be uh, posted next week. But I would refer back to, to that listen um, from September with that team because I think it just so nicely connects um, to these uh, themes, Erin, that you're talking about. And thinking also about my two-year colleagues and that um, for your work study positions, right? I mean, yeah. that can be such an important way to connect students to um, to feeling like they they have some skin in the game at our institutions, right? That they're c- cared for and part of a team and valued. Um, as I well. think that's that's a brilliant observation. I, I have always loved the idea of the work study program, and I've always thought it was very undervalued because it's something that not only supports students um, economically, right, but it it contributes to their professional development. And I'm actually, I'm working on another piece of writing that um, talks about the future of the financial aid profession and really cites as one of the things that I think could make the most difference is a very intentional move to um, train work-study students in financial aid. And uh, right now, you know, we do like, we have like one in our office, right? But what if you, what if you hired six and you train them for the profession, right? And then you 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 move them forward as um, you know those those great professionals. But I think you're absolutely right. Those are those opportunities for us to think about. Isn't this what we do, right? As a higher education institution, right? What what we do is not transfer content to people. What we do is we mentor young people through this stage of their life where they need direction, where they need to know how the world works, where they need to know, like, what does it mean to be a professional, right? Like, I feel like that's like a huge part of our jobs that I think we've just sort of drifted away from sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and th- those are the pieces that often when I read reports about what is it that um, employers are looking for, right? It's those sorts of skills um, yeah. that they want to hire graduates who can, everything you just said. Um, and so how do we we help provide those opportunities? Kenyatta's asked a great question about thinking about our students um, who have financial reasons and immediate um, needs their priority might be um, work, um, making sure they have how adequate housing, um, food resources. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're 
we're, we've seen a lot of expansion um, in the last year and a half, two years, certainly of um, programs to try to kind of do wraparound services, right, where we're addressing helping students make sure they have housing, make sure they have transportation, make sure they have um, food resources and things like that. But um, any thoughts you might have around addressing that particular um, kind of population of students? And I know, you know, one stat, just to, to give you a second to kind of chew on that, um, is that more and more of our students are coming to us who are working full time, whether they're enrolled at the University of Lynchburg or they're enrolled at Piedmont Virginia Community College. Um, you know, we're seeing an increased number of students who need to work, um, which sometimes isn't necessarily valued, right? Like we're, I think higher ed professionals are like, you're in school. This is your full-time job. Yeah. When actually students could learn really important things from, you know, some of those work experiences too, right? So I think we're seeing some bifurcation there, honestly, because, you know, uh, I was just noting with a financial aid consultant the other day that she's seeing, you know, reductions in students when they apply for aid. You know, some groups of students are working less, even summer jobs, right? While other groups of students are working constantly, right? And so you 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 you're missing your, the, you know, the middle. And I think what happens, I mean, it's hard for an institution to really um, provide total wraparound service. It's just hard. That's not like, that's not necessarily what we're trained to do. And so I think we, we do the best we can with the good intentions that we have. Um, But um, I, I think, you know, again, you're going back to like, what is it you can't fix everything for everybody, right? You can try to help, but what you really, I think what we can do is we can inspire people, right? We can inspire people that like, yes, you're going to have major challenges and I might not even understand all the major challenges that you're going, you know, going to have and go through. I can't fix them for you, but I can tell you that it's worth doing, right? You will come out on the other side of this and you will have something, you will have made this investment in yourself that will pay off and it will start to solve some of those challenges for you in the long run um, if you can get this, but we need to help make sure you get to it and get through it. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing a lot too is there, you know, there are all these articles that I've seen and read and talking about, you know, how students are disengaged in the classroom, right? Or they're just not, you know, they're responding in strange ways. And if if you think about it, going back to what you were saying about sort of trauma, I mean, they really have the characteristics of someone who is in shock, right? I mean, that's that's sort of what they're disengaged. They're not sure you know, they're not aware, they don't, they're not planning for the future. They're not, you know, they're, they're acting like someone who has just come out of a very shocking, traumatic kind of, you know, situation and trying to get their bearings. And so you're right. I mean, I think having some, some care for that is really, really important and help, you know, again, helping to help them visualize the future a little bit better. Right. Because I think everybody's been so in the now um, for the last couple of years that helping them recapture a vision for what their future could look like is, is really important. Yeah. I think that's such a, an important point that, um, and I'm glad you brought up that idea of disengagement because that's been a, a real big theme this semester. Um, I feel like with so many of my colleagues and um, concern about that. And, and if we can uh, remember that these students are, are, we're all kind of coming out of this place of trauma, which is um, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's, you know, sort of position for this academic year and moving forward. Um, I think that's such a critical piece we can't lose sight of, um, but also helping our students remember what, why are we doing this thing? I, I spend a lot of time in my first year experience classes with my students, kind of circling back to why are we here? Um, and, and 
and and sharing the statistics. I think they're important ones of the value of getting an associate's degree, right? Or the value of getting your bachelor's degree and what that can mean for you um, kind of long-term um, as we look long-term. Keisha's um, shared with us that her institution has a single stop. I know many kind of, uh, especially my two-year colleagues are moving in these directions, which provide non-academic resources. So lots of great um, information out there about you know what single stops look like. Um, I know there's some pretty big grant initiatives too to, to fund those sorts of resources at our institutions. I wanna take a shift back just for a minute um, towards this idea of enrollment um, and, and touch on, so are there any recommendations you have for institutions? One, one of um, our listeners chatted in that she's at an HBCU, struggling with retention, particularly when they're losing students who had been on scholarship, for example. So, um, but recommendations that you might have for institutions that are looking to stabilize or grow enrollment for in this upcoming, year or so. Absolutely. You know, and I hope it doesn't sound too simplified, but I think uh, over time, I have really become more and more convinced that um, often our problem is one of differentiation. Um, that I think in the long term, when there is competition in the market like this, um, the institutions that will survive and thrive are the ones that are going to be able to say, this is who we are and this is what we're great at. Um, and I think for those, those um, folks who may have been in uh, you know, enrollment for a long time, right? there was a time period where uh, everybody wanted well-rounded students. That was the way we talked about it. right? And then we sort of moved beyond that to where we wanted, I will, I'll call them angular students. right? We wanted them to have a few things that they were great at because instead of having, you know, first we used to want them to try everything and be be only like broad, you know, broadly well-rounded. And then we were like, wait a minute, maybe broad's not great. Maybe they should have depth in certain areas so they stick out. And then our class should be well-rounded because we are recruiting different types of students who are angular, right? And I think in some ways we've been handed the same um, thing, right? And on the institutional side. Now that was in an era where there was lots of demand and less supply, right? Now we're in an era where there's lots of supply and not much demand. And so students are now looking at us and saying, hey, it's not okay to just be broadly well-rounded, to be everything to everybody. It's not okay for you to just say, oh yeah, we have great programs and small classes and you know good faculty and that kind of thing. They're saying, what are your angles? What are the things where you have corners that I can grab a hold of and say, this is why I would want to go to you and not somewhere else. So differentiating in that way, I think is really, really, really important. I mean, when I talk about my own institution, I always talk about what I think people you know most need to know. And I make it a okay. short list, right? And say, I want everyone to know these couple of things about my institution and what's most important to us, because that's the only way to allow students to self-identify with you, right? You put out there and you say, these are our values. These are what we care about. We're not a match for everybody, but, but every student who considers this as a value should look at us. And I think that resonates in the marketplace. You'll find students who are like, oh, they care about that too. Wow, maybe maybe they will invest with me in whatever I'm passionate about, right? So um, I, I think that's that's really critical. And especially in a time period where, um, you know, I think the institutions that have benefited the most from, you know, this sort of uncertainty in the marketplace have typically been, you know, larger institutions, right? That don't need the extra enrollment. They're the ones who are getting, you know, more applications than everybody else. Um, but I think, you know, for, for those places that are not in that select group of students, it's just critical for people to know who we are. They should be able to like sum up in, you know, a couple of quick things. What makes us different? 
who we are, what kind of students are, would be a match for us. And I, I always say, plant your flag and let other people rally to it. Hmm. I like that. I love that. Miles is chiming in too, that he really appreciates this. And Keisha's made the point that um, selling your return on investment is more important now than ever, right? And I think there's been some fascinating data put out this year on really examining, like, yeah. if, if, and not to pick on them, but if you go to Stanford and you get a degree in religious studies, I think you will really never earn back the money that you have spent on your education. And, and right. I mean, um, but really thinking about it's, it's not enough now to say, well, higher education is just important because it's just important. Right. Right. Which right. I think for years is what we said. Well, we value this because of we course, value it. why wouldn't students want to invest in this? Right. Right. And I think you're right. Or we were, you know, even when we did sort of give some like, you know, tacit, you know, importance to some outcomes, we would be like, oh, well, you know, here's our general outcome statistic. Right. This many students get the good jobs in six months or this, you know that's not really that helpful. I mean, it's an easy shortcut for places to use, but I think, again, it's kind of lazy, right? Where we should be saying, no, look, you know, it's students in your major are doing these things right now. While they're in college, they're doing these things. And this is why that's important to an employer, right? And our employers tell us that this is important to them. And, you know, we can show you how these experiences, uh, you know, uh, will will matter in your life. Um, and I think, you know, it's so fascinating. I, I think back often to a, um, a study, a, a video that I saw um, uh, from Malcolm Gladwell, who did this big study on um, colleges. And, you know, he, he looked at highly selective colleges and then middle colleges and then like really not selective colleges. And his basic conclusion was wherever you go, be in the top third of the students in that institution. And you will be much more likely to be successful because students in the top third are they get the best opportunities that are there. They have the most research you know, access. They have the most access to faculty, whatever it is. So he kind of said, look, don't go to the best school you can get into. Go to the one where you're going to be a star because that it, it, it predicts your success so much better. So we have not been challenged in those ways to, I think, prove our value. And I think we're increasingly going to be. And the institutions that are able to, to demonstrate that are, are going to be the ones that are going to be more successful. So intriguing. Because I, uh, you know, as a, to put on my parent hat for just a second, Aaron, I mean, I have a child who's in high school, right? So finally, what I do for a living is relevant <laughs> to the conversation right. um, as we look forward. And, and it's been interesting to watch, right? Just in our state, the University of Virginia, 51,000 applications this year. Virginia Tech, 48,000 applications this year. Um, so more selective than ever. Um, and, and so there's this like scramble like there's this real panic I feel amongst the parents I know about, oh, my child isn't going to get into a good college or university. And, and there's, there's this uh, it really upsetting to me. I feel like there's a race to nowhere, if yeah. that makes sense, yeah. um, that is creating all this stress and all this tension when the reality is there are going to be lots of options. Yes. Quality is not, you know, in just a few places because there's not one definition of quality, right? That there's not one, you know, they're not good schools and not good schools. There are great schools for certain students and not great schools for certain students. And um, I, I find it really fascinating too. Like I look at the overall market trends and I think, you know, 30 years ago, 
public institutions were trying to be like private institutions. They were copying their honor, you know, like making honors programs to try to copy their experience. And now it's totally flipped on its head. And now, you know, private institutions are trying to, you know, win the um, sort of economic game, right? The, the cost game, trying to be like public institutions. It's, it's really fascinating to see how that's changed. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I want to kind of make sure folks know that they can chat in any questions. Because um, my last question for Aaron, I sort of shift. I mean, um, you know, we're talking enrollment, we're talking retention, uh, fascinated by these important strategies. And what I think is intriguing about what you're saying, in my mind, it's it's almost cultural shifts at institutions, right? You're not saying, if you purchase this $100,000 set of blah, 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 it will solve all of your enrollment challenges, right? It's if we think about our practices, if we think about our processes, our policies, our procedures, and our our culture of care at our institutions. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not, I'm not diminishing the challenges there because um, I know systems are complicated. Um, but but it's it's just such a I think a refreshing take on yeah. this this important work we do. It's so funny because I think you know sometimes we have you know forgotten this maybe, but you know we can go back to the golden rule, right? And you can say like, would I want my son or daughter to be treated the way that you know our processes are treating our current families? Yeah. And I think often the answer is no, um, and that's that should be our first sign, right? This isn't as complicated in some ways as we think. It is complicated to move a large you know, organization that has lots of moving parts, right? But a lot of that has to do with talking with each other and using some common sense about, again, the student journey, right? The customer experience and saying, look, no, I, you know, we're asking, you know, students to make or families to make one of the largest commitments in their lives. And we give them the bill July 1st and ask them to come up with it by August 1st, right? I mean, that's, that's really doesn't make that much sense. Um, but yet that's just how we've always done business. And we've been able to do that in the past because people always really wanted what we offered. And now that the demand for what we offer is a little bit more in question, we can't do that anymore. We need to up our game in terms of the way that we treat people. Awesome. Yes, uh, absolutely. So to that ties in really nicely to this last idea. You know, you've You've done so much work um, around supervising and mentoring professionals, I know, in your career. And, um, you know, one of the things we're seeing a lot of is um, concern about resignations. You know, right, this is the great resignation period um, in history or what have you, but staff burnout. Um, and, and I feel for having worked in admissions, I feel for admissions staff in particular, because I know that can be a really stressful um, role to be in, um, depending on our institution. So advice for staff, advice for those supporting staff or those of us who may be saying, Ooh, I'm, I'm feeling roasted and toasted at the end of, you know, I mean, I, we're not done with this pandemic experience. Right. And I, I think some of us keep saying, well, I'm waiting for the, when is the period of relief? Yeah. <laughs> it is all lifted. Yeah, it's funny. I was listening to a speaker yesterday who shared a comment. She said, you know, the real challenge are the people that, um, you know, 
among your staff and supervising your staff is the people who have quit their jobs, but are still working for you. Right. Um, you know, people who are just like they're checked out. Right. And I think it has been. I think, again, it goes back to the fact that we used to do some things that in, in different times were OK and people would sort of put up with. And then now that we're in a different time and people have done a lot more self-reflection, they're just like, that's not worth it anymore to me. Right. And so I, I think, you know, one of those things is, you know, admissions counselors who spend, you know, 10 weeks on the road, just burning from place to place, you know, they, they rush around, they are, you know, just constantly sort of underappreciated. Right. And I think the, we really could do ourselves better by investing in a different way in those students and trying to create a culture where, you know, those folks feel heard, they feel mentored, you know, like, like students do, like we were just talking about, right. And they feel like somebody's got in mind a professional future for them. Um, and in a funny way, your, you know, retention of your staff is very much like retention of your students, right. Where they want somebody to believe in them and something that where they feel like they are making a difference, right. You give them some task that they own, that they can move forward. They can see the results of their work and then make sure they know that somebody, they matter to someone that somebody really cares that they're there and has their future in mind. Right. Um, so I think those are, those are really important pieces, particularly in this time. And especially where we're coming off of, are they in the office or out of the office? They're working remotely. Right. Um, those are, those are some pretty big changes. Um, you know, I would love to see in the long term, you know, some kind of, I've, I've kind of joked about this, some kind of like academy for um, admissions and financial aid professionals, right, where we work with our current students who maybe, you know, are tour guides for us, and we, we send them off to like a summer, you know, program or something for a week or two, and they build up skills in this area. And then they, you know, they go on a list on a roster and colleges out there know, wow, these students have already been partly trained if I want to hire them. I think that would be, you know, enormously helpful to our profession. Um, And I think, you know, in our areas in particular, institutions have to kind of realize how important the work is that that we do um, in order to see that, you know, these these young folks are carrying the fate of the institution on their backs. So. Mm-hmm. All good. You know, um, and that's an interesting comment kind of professionally as we think about development. I know, you know, in various organizations along the way, NODA has a huge emphasis. The Orientation Directors Association has huge development program, right, for students who are orientation leaders, which sort of creates this funnel of potential orientation directors mm-hmm. as they graduate, right? Um, and I know uh, the organization, I, I can't, is it a CUHO that's whoever's student unions, they do much the similar thing where they're these student leadership development programs. And then you watch that become this funnel of professional, uh, professional future professionals. Um, Miles is wondering what percentage of student services professionals had work study experience in college themselves. And, and I would imagine it's just thinking about my cohort in graduate school, a fair number of us, myself mm-hmm. included, um, you know, uh, and, and how important that that touchstone is. Aaron, I think, you know, to kind of bring us full circle here, um, your initial thoughts about how are we connecting students with our organization, being intentional about that. And I, I don't think it matters the size of our organization. No. Yeah, not that. No. It doesn't matter if you've 3,000 students or 30,000 students. It's, it's, that has to happen. And what's interesting too is, you know, um, 
people do what people see, right? They, um, they will look to you as an example. And I think so much of the culture that you create is created by the leadership that you have and the way this, the, um, you know, the signals that you send, right? So one of the reasons I love working at the University of Lynchburg, I think we have a really good leadership group. I, I love our president and she's very, she's transparent and she's very committed to students. And I think people get the idea, if you show it, that people matter, individual people matter, right? You matter to us, right? As an, as a, an employee, we want to take care of you. We want to make sure that you are having a good experience so that you can do great things for us. Right. But you have to feel like that's important. And I think that's part of what's been lost, I think, and why we've seen so much turnover is that, you know, people used to be in this business because they were felt like they were serving the greater good. Right. Right. And they were here because they felt students mattered and they wanted to contribute to that. And I think through all the stresses that we've seen over the last couple of years, um, it was hard to demonstrate that people mattered, that individuals were really important. And so I think, you know, without that, there's much less impetus for people to stay, right? They look and they're like, wait a minute, I'm working for low pay and long hours and I'm not really valued. So I think that's a big change. Yeah. And I think that ties into some of this idea too of of disengagement that we're seeing in the classroom, Um, I think is the same for uh, you know, our staff, right? That if if everything we've done in the last two years, learning work has been very transactional, you know, this has to get done, do this task. Um, and, and if we've moved away from the relationship piece, the creative and critical thinking pieces, then we've really lost that, um, that, that sense that what I do, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's um, in my office matters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have reached um, 1245, so I don't want to keep um, folks over. But Aaron, I just want to say thank you so much. This was this was just a fascinating conversation. I took a whole page of notes. Um, and and I hope that we can have you back um, in the future to, to continue to kind of see. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be so interested to see how this fall evolves. Yeah, well, um, it was my great pleasure. I'm happy to come back anytime. So thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And thanks, everybody, for listening in um, to our Friday Five Live. As a reminder, if you're listening live, um, a survey pops up at the end, and it's always helpful to us to hear from you um, about how we can shape um, our podcast conversations moving forward. In July, we're going to invite Dan Maxwell, um, who's the Vice President for Student Services um, at the University of Houston, in um, to talk about ways, uh, creative ways that he is really um, listening to the student needs at his institution, which Aaron, I think, completely speaks to (laughs) that concept of retention um, that you shared with us today. And that's a massive organization. So um, I'm going to be excited to go from, uh, you know, small private to a large public and some similar themes I know that we'll probably see evolve um, from that conversation. So thanks, everybody, so much. Um, Have a wonderful weekend. As always, we hope you have time for rest um, and renewal. And a reminder that Friday Five Live can be found on all major um, podcasting channels and will be available on Monday as well on the Innovative Educators website. So thank you, everyone. Take care. Thanks, Aaron. Cool. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. 
Visit us at InnovativeEducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives. 